Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show that looks at technology and the way it is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. During this series, we're asking you to share your thoughts with us about what technologies you think are either underrated or overrated and why. We'll be reporting back on your answers later in this series. Today, we hear from an entrepreneur and economist who wants to change the way the internet works. As corporations develop capabilities, you know, bots and new layers and layers on top of the internet, we were kind of left behind. (laughs) We became harvested instead. That was Irene Ng. She came into the FT studio to tell me about her vision for redistributing the economic power of data. Welcome to the studio, Irene. We've got a lot to talk about in the fields of data, privacy and the internet economy. But first, I'd like to hear more about your backstory. I've read that you founded a cruise line and ran a casino, which is a somewhat unusual background. Tell us about that. Yes, I did. My father is a Chinese entrepreneur, so he bought a travel company and he said, here's a million dollars, go turn it around because he was losing money. And I said, OK. And uh, how old were you at that point? I was 26. Uh-huh. Had you ever had any interest in business before? No, but, you know, my father was an entrepreneur. He believed all his children must be. <laughs> and so here's a million, turn the company around. And he forgot to tell me that he had a debt of 2.6 million. And so I spent three years trying to turn the company around. My first skill sets were about negotiating debt. And a lot of it was around how to take money and try to make the operation work. Cruise Line was one of those interesting business where people gave you lots and lots of money and let you sit on it for about three months before you actually deliver the cruise. And so I went into the charter of cruise ships because it could give me the cash flow to really help the operation. And then at the same time, we also created a unique experience on board. And that was coupled with quite a large casino operations because just that's how it was done in Asia. Right. And where was this in Asia? It was in Malaysia and Singapore. Right. And how long did you do that for? I sold in 96. And then in 97, I thought I should write it all down. And I checked into the National University of Singapore to do research and then promptly changed my mind and decided I really love mathematical economics and game theory instead. So there we go. So you became an academic? (laughs) Yes, I did ask my husband at that time whether I could take a 75% pay cut to become an academic, and he says, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting conversation that must have been. Now, tell us about HAT. What does HAT stand for? Uh, Hub of all things. It was a £1.3 million project from the UK government, the LCUK Digital Economy Project. And that project created the Hub of all things, which is the HAT microserver. And you were developing this while you were a professor at Warwick University? I am still a professor at Warwick Mm -hmm. University, but we developed it from 2013 to 2015 and then wrote six major papers about how this could change everything, and then looked around and said no one was going to implement it. What is the main problem that you're trying to solve? Power, economic power of a normal digital citizen on the internet. When the person goes onto internet, the only capability he has is with his little fingers that he can swipe, his little fingers that can press a couple of mouse clicks. He has no bots, No AI, no computation, no storage, nothing. The internet didn't start out to be like that, but it became that. The microserver brings a capability back to an individual citizen to make him valuable again. 
Can you describe how it works? How does it change the power relationship? So if you have a hat microserver, you can do a few things. Um, first, you get yourself one, which is quite easy. And then you can start acquiring the different bits of you, bits of data elsewhere. Uh, you can get it from Spotify, Fitbit, Google Calendar, even Facebook, Twitter. And when it sits in your microserver, it's your data. It's not data run or processed or serviced by someone else. It's yours. And we do something interesting with the hat. We let you, with a few toggles, button pushes, control your hat, much like virtual reality kind of situation. And these permissions and instructions are the ones that allow apps to access your data. And that's one step, which is any app can use your microserver as a universal user account so that it's not trapped in the app. They can still hold it if they want to, but you have it too. And then you can start reusing the different data across different apps. So that's step one. Step two is you can also install new tools and new AI cool stuff to draw insights. And these insights create new data. That becomes now hat data. You can share that too, the same way you share the hat data through a data debit. And that makes you more and more valuable as a microserver, as a user account. And the third step is a whole hat accelerator to accelerate a whole bunch of new applications on the internet that's built on the microserver. You said it was very easy to get hold of hat. How do you do that? Well, you just have to go to hubofallthings.com and you can get a hat through an iOS app or you can get it through the web. You get it within three to five seconds. It's your own URL. You have your own domain name. So choose your domain name and that's your server. And once you have the server, you just go to your server address minus hatcentral.hubofallthings.net and you can start pulling in the data, viewing your life and viewing the data that's out there and sharing it whenever an app asks you for it. So you can connect that to all of your internet-connected devices that you use? Not all. We are in the process. We've got five. It's moving on to six and eight and banks are coming in. And so more and more of you can be now in the microserver. In that sense, it's like mining, isn't it? You're mining your own coal or, or diamonds. And then you need some polishing inside and then more apps will ask you for it. And slowly, the hat makes you more and more valuable as a person. Where are the microservers hosted? Currently, they are hosted on Amazon Web Service, AWS, but they are distinctly one database per person wrapped around with containers. So they are actually very portable. If you don't like it hosted in AWS, you can just download it onto your own PC. And later, we will be building these microservers on different cloud infrastructures. How do you think that this technology, if it grows to scale, would change the power relationship on the internet? Well, let's start. I mean, at the beginning, the internet was pretty flat. Everybody had a PC, they went on the browser, and everybody was the same. And then slowly, we became more and more centralized. Social media is now centralized around Facebook. Search is centralized around Google. So we now start having centralized systems within essentially what was decentralized internet. And you can't blame centralization because services become more efficient as a result. And so there is a huge force to want to decentralize the relationship somehow. And blockchain is part of that. And the microservers are part of that decentralization too, the hat microservers. But you need to work together because 
centralized and decentralized system have a role on the internet. The way in civil society, the way it is in real life, we have decentralized people. I dress myself, I wear my own clothes, I don't need someone to do it for me because it's really private. But at the same time, I can go out and have centralized service. I can be part of a family, be part of a city. And so on the internet, we think of that as the same. You should have decentralized microservers of your own, where you can do your own stuff, and then you can join centralized systems whenever you wish. What do you think this model would do to the existing giants that you're talking about, the Facebooks and Googles? How would it affect them? I think it's actually beneficial. I mean, Google and Facebook is having quite a bit of flack right now, rightly or wrongly, and there's a bit of an erosion of trust, and that's not sustainable, and it's not good for the internet in general. And to be honest, the internet isn't going to stop. You know, you have more and more connected devices coming on, TVs, hair dryers, and everything. So no one company can hog them all, and if they do try, you just get a lot of pushback. And so if everybody starts controlling your own data across every different kinds of app, they can also ask you nicely for your data, maybe to do better. So they could still deliver the same services as they do incredibly effectively at the moment, but you think it would be with a higher level of data integrity and privacy? Yes, and even quality. And so we hear all the time how Amazon starts recommending that toilet seat you bought five minutes ago. So it's really not very good right now in terms of recommendation and personalization. Imagine if you had a microserver of which you can just ping real-time on-demand data for five minutes and then withdraw it because you just need to issue me an invoice or personalize your inventory. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Has all the Ferrari about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and the use of data? Is that helping you at the moment? Is it really focus people's minds on this? It's a bit double-edged, I think. It's focused people's minds about the value of data and why and how much is it out there. But it's also created a little bit of knee-jerk fear-mongering to make people say, you know, let's delete Facebook, let's not do this. Well, that's not great. You know, data and data economy has a huge capability of transforming society in terms of early detection of depression or signs or markers. We really shouldn't have that deter people from engaging on the internet. So if your vision plays out, you will almost return to the original conception of the internet, which was this decentralised system of information that would help empower individuals. Well, I think the original internet was decentralised because very few entities, whether it's humans or corporations, had the capabilities. As corporations develop capabilities, you know, bots and new layers and layers on top of the internet, we were kind of left behind. (laughs) We became harvested instead. And you can't blame us because we have no such capability except a PC or a phone. The microserver brings that on a sort of more even keel. And that will allow both systems to flourish. There will be some services that are much better decentralised 
because you really don't want everybody to see all your location all week, all day. And so you might do computations on location and just ping out which pub I'm closest to at certain times of the day. And you then allow some decentralized services and some centralized services. Now, as you were mentioning earlier, another vision of distributed power is the blockchain. How does the HAT microservers differ from blockchain in its intent and conception? I think blockchain is a good tool for a lot of what I call transactional data, data that's really critical. If you change the last number of your passport, that's pretty critical. It changes who you are. But if you change the last number of the number of Fitbit steps, it isn't really that critical, is it? And you wouldn't mind so much. And a lot of the internet, I would venture, 90% of the internet data traffic is these type data, what I call relational data. But they are very powerful because they can help personalised shoes and clothing, what you watch, all of that. And so the microservers help with the relational data and the relationships of relational data, whereas blockchains tends to be much more suitable for critical transactional kind of data. You were talking earlier about how the HAT model could lead to the creation of new data sets and perhaps new services of that. Can you tell us more about that? So my favourite story, of course, is how data economy is not working so well, which is... Google Calendar actually knows that I have an appointment here in London and there is a break between here and my next appointment. Clearly, I need to have lunch. Now, I have that data on my Google Calendar, but I get no service to recommend me anything, partly because I don't think I'll give it to anybody, which shows that what we call in economics market failure, what we call a perishable signal, that signal will perish after that hour and it's gone and I get no recommendation. What the microserver can do is it can generate new data, new data signals to say, actually, I'm looking for a recommendation for lunch. Now, right now, it tends to be a push model. Facebook tries to push that at you or someone tries to push at you. But it could be a pull model as well because you genuinely want it and you might want to give it to Time Out London. You might want to give it to TripAdvisor. Who knows who you want to give the signal to? And these are what we call she data, which is she smart hat engine. The data that's generated within the hat because of smart algorithm and the data scientists that actually created the algorithm get a royalty if that data is being used by an app. This is all an incredibly compelling vision. How are you trying to turn it into a reality? Tell us about the development of HAT. So it's a very typical way when you deconstruct something, it sounds really complex. And if you look at your phone, if I deconstruct how the phone is working, you wouldn't understand it at all. All you care is that it's working and the services are there. And the hat is pretty much like this. If you go on to get your hat, you'll see your data. You get to be able to pull and push and do all kinds of things. I'll bet you within 15 minutes, you say, OK, what else? There you, you've already got everything that I've described in just a few button pushes. That hat and, of course, the different apps that access it, it's already live. It's on the platform. And we have some 10, 12 partners and more of them growing, building on the hat. And we are raising crowdfunding through Crowdcube. How much money have you raised and why have you gone the crowdfunding route? Well, the hat started as a research project and we knew that we really wanted to engage with the community, the hat owners, people who cared. And these are the early adopters, people who can say, years later, I was the first one. I was the first one, 100,000, 10,000, 1,000. And we think everybody should be proud of being the first hat owner. Unfortunately, of course, like being the first owner of the PC in 1976, very few applications on it, right? <laughs> but at least you can say, I own the first PC. 
And so the, the hat is out there and our community deserves really a chance to give us feedback on how we're doing and what more they want from us. And because it's grown by apps and tools and plugs, not just by one company, it's a growing of a whole ecosystem. This is the reason why we went down the crowdfunding route, because we felt we had to raise money through an engagement. It doesn't mean we don't raise on VCs. We are still talking to a few VCs, but we thought a crowdfunding route would be ideal. I mean, someone who has such a compelling idea for totally transforming the internet would be kind of prime candidate for VC funding, you would have thought. Why have you chosen not to go fully that route? There are two reasons. One, as I was mentioning to you before, and someone gave me this great analogy, in fact, one of our partners said that this morning. So when you take a little box to the United Nations and said, in this box is world peace, no one will fund you, no one will believe you. And they want to say, well, let's have world peace happen first before we, we fund you. And that's one of the challenges we face. So you don't say world peace, you say peace in Syria or something. And so we have to start small and slowly grow it organically. And usually VCs want to see traction before you actually do. And we do have traction, we just don't have revenues yet, which comes hopefully in the next six to eight months. And how is that going to come? So there are two primary purposes for the hat. The Hack Community Foundation, which is the regulator of the ecosystem, just wants a more valuable digital person. So the Hat's task is that. And the Hat is open source, so therefore we believe it should be the next standard on the internet as for private Hat microservice or data accounts. And we make money by selling Hats in bulk, but that's not really the real source when we scale. The real source is transactions. So you don't just bring your data in there, like the way you bring your money and put it under the mattress. We want you to spend it. And so if you spend your money, the economy grows. You spend your data, the economy grows. And so Hadax, the company, the startup, takes little micro-clippings whenever you spend it. If you see a nice service that personalizes something, and you exchange that data, it gets a little clip of that. What clip would that be? Per pull, uh, depends on what kind of data. Mm-hmm. So if it's just normal hat data you can get, like Facebook data or Spotify data is 25p for 1,000 calls. If you have she data, which is the derivative of the hat data that has been used, the algos, AIs have got to it and created new data, that would be anywhere between 2 to $3 per call. Now, there are about 1,300 hats in operation at the moment. How are you going to build the network? The hat itself is powered by the hat. You wouldn't probably get a hat from the technology provider, just like you didn't get a bank account from a bank account technology provider. You got it from HSBC. So our hat providers are the ones who give their own customers hats. They would call them maybe an app user account or private data account, and it's branded by them. There will be something at the bottom that says powered by the hat, pretty much like Intel Inside. But at the same time, you would then probably after your third fourth app realize that, hey, all this data is actually mine. I could go to a hat app and start to look back on my digital life. But not before then, I think. So rolling out will be through partners, the great services they will provide with the data that's on the hat. And you wrote recently that you're in talks with some of the big financial services companies, marketing and education companies and so on. How are you going to partner with them to develop this network? So the HAT has quite a few entities now. The HAT Community Foundation, as I mentioned, which is the regulator. The HAT Data Exchange that does the micro-clippings of data exchanges. There is an entity that's a combination of the two called the HAT Accelerator. And that basically has just got a purchase order for 10 million HATs, a 30 million pound purchase order to create the next generation of internet apps on the HAT microserver. 
And that's quite exciting because over the next six months, we will be tying out the final details as to what new consumer finance and educational apps that come out of it. Where do you think it will have the biggest impact? I don't know. (laughs) But I know our partners are really excited about what this can do to a lot of consumer finance services in terms of changing the way we think about risk and lending, but also on the educational side, the way we can for life keep our records of our grades. We have a project that starts in September on personalised children's hats on personalized ebooks, where the child, as he reads, the data goes in the hat and the algorithm in the hat detects that he's maybe struggling with a few words. And before he turns the page, all the content gets updated to help him with those few words and to personalize the ebook. And we're working with two or three children's publishers. So, you know, in education and consumer finance is probably where the biggest impact is going to be. Right. Now, there are lots of people who are working on the whole issue of data and privacy What makes HAT distinctive? What makes you different from some of the other big projects that are going on at the moment? We're not trying to solve a privacy issue. We're trying to solve the economic power issue. The fact that as individuals, we have very little power over what goes on on the internet. We have very little influence. And we know that in order to get that power, you must be in control of your data, not through any other party except yourself. First party contract. When I give it to an app, I don't have a third party involved. That, we think, will rebalance things. And yes, hopefully that will stop others from hoarding because if I have it and can give it real time, you don't have to hoard the data. And overall, we have a world that is better, more secured and more private, but we don't know whether that will happen because that's not the objective of what the hat is. So what you're really planning is a data revolution, isn't it? Yes, because data is all about rights. You can take Facebook data in Facebook and it has a different set of rights, but the same Facebook data in my microserver has a different set of rights. So because it's a different set of rights, you create a different product out of it. And it's very important to understand that people have two major misunderstandings about data. One, as though it's there as an object to be sold. No, it's like air and water. If you don't put a boundary to it, as in where it sits, you can't exchange it. It doesn't have those rights to exchange. And the second misunderstanding they have is that they think data can be monetized, but data is money. Data is a currency. So when somebody says, oh, so what is the value of your data? Well, what is the value of the US dollars? The value of the US dollar is a basket of goods. The value of data is a basket of recommendations. So to say that you can monetize your data is one of the fundamental misunderstandings because of the centralized world. Once we do it this way, we then understand we can spend it easily. There is a wallet of your data to spend it on. Then we get into an understanding of the economics of it better. So this is not just a technology solution to the problem. It's a far broader reconceptualization of the whole economics and legal structure of the internet in a way. It's a reconstruction of the asset of data. How ambitious are you? Um, I'm already 55. How ambitious can I be? (laughs) You know, this will hopefully last longer than I will live. Hopefully, if we are successful. But I think it's not about me. I think it's about other people who want it as well and who believe this is the right thing to do and join us and be part of that community that doesn't have an ideology as to what privacy is or what markets should be. 
but really just rebalancing the ability for society to have conversations around the role of the market and the role of society and role of government in all that. Well, it'll be fascinating to watch how HAT develops. Thank you so much, Irene. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. And do let us know what you think about those overrated and underrated technologies. If you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, then please take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.